Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, we welcome Sam Hall, the APAC CEO of Venture Builder Rainmaking. With a strong background in startups, growth, and venture building in the corporate world, including founding and working with a number of startups and playing the role of managing director for the Accelerator Startup Bootcamp, Sam joins us to discuss the role that venture builders like Rainmaking play in the corporate world, the challenges that large companies face in innovating, and the role that corporates can play in disrupting the startup world. Sam, thank you very much for coming onto the show. Um, how have you? How have you been keeping? Good, thank you. Um, very happy to be here with you. So thank you for hosting me. I've been super good. I think um, the worst of the lockdown is clearly behind us now, hopefully. Um, yeah. um, and, and I've been having, yeah, a, lot, a good time, a lot of fun with my family. Spent a lot of time Excellent. with the in the past months because she's been at home so much. So keeping super well. How about you? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been doing okay. I've been doing okay. I'd say um, everybody's getting over the lockdown and everybody will soon be having to get over the lockdown as well of <laughs> all that time at, uh, at home. Um, and so have you, you obviously been keeping busy? Have you had, learned any new hobbies or learned anything interesting um, over, the, was, over the... Yeah, I talked to my team about this um, in back because everybody was sharing about the new hobbies that they've been taking up and the skills they've been learning and the you know, um, various new focuses. And I felt quite embarrassed because I realized I haven't really been doing anything. Um, so the, the best I could say is I've, I've been getting back into swimming, um, which I like, so I find it very meditative. Um, but the one thing I committed to my team, so I, I'm going to make myself very embarrassed by admitting this on the podcast, but um, I, I'm not a particularly good swimmer, happy to admit that. Um, one thing I've never mastered, even though I swim up and down, is I've never mastered the tumble turn. So my challenge and the thing that I need to learn uh, and I need to commit to, to actually learning is tumble turning, but I can't say I've done it just yet. No, it's um, I, I, a very long time and many, many kilos ago, I, I, I did a couple of seasons of doing triathlons and um, and, and even with all the, 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 the training, I, I could never master those. You end up going off at the wall at some strange, strange angles. Have you seen a correlation between, um, and it's not on tumble turning necessarily, but uh, <laughs> a, a, a correlation between people that have picked up hobbies um, versus not and people who have kids versus not? <laughs> Fantastic question. Um, I, I, let me have a quick think. I think you're probably right that there is a bit of a correlation there. I know that myself and the others that I work with who have children at home um, have been doing a lot more firefighting um, and have been doing a lot more just trying to stay sane. 
So yes, I think you're right. I think you're right on that point. Yeah, I, I've heard I want ice cream a few times on, on conference calls, um, mostly from children, but um, not always. Um. <laughs> but it's a bit different now because we're, I mean, my, my, I've got a daughter who's, who's just over one year old and she's in infant care most of the time. And there was the period where infant care was shut. So she was at home um, with myself and my wife. And I found myself on a lot of video calls with her on my shoulders because it's the only thing we could do to, uh, to to keep her entertained was have her up on the shoulders and actually watching the call. So that's yeah. made very interesting workshops. Excellent, excellent. It's, um, it's funny how kids that young still get really bored if you don't sort of take them out and play with them. I hope there was no sort of baby baby sick experiences while whilst you're on a... <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, I dodged that, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, great. So that, um, again, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, we're going to um, sort of delve into, uh, you know, the world of... I guess corporate ventures and things, things like that, on this show. Um, so, um, keen to, I guess, start with a bit of a bit of a background on yourself. Perhaps you can sort of talk us through sort of what brought you to to rainmaking and, and, and sort of yeah, and just your journey, your journey to date. Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, so so I'm CEO for APAC uh, for rainmaking, um, and and I run the business here in this region. We have offices in Singapore, uh, in Australia, and also over in Japan. Um, so I took a, I should say, not conventional route into venture building, but I guess that nobody really takes a conventional route into venture building because it's only now, today, I guess, in the last couple of years where that conventional path to venture building has started to be properly forged. Um, so I'm originally from London, uh, so I'm British, and I actually started my career as a corporate lawyer. So I studied law in university, and I then, post-university, um, worked for one of the big corporate law firms in, in a few locations around the world, was pri primarily based in London. But I was, it became very apparent to me very early that I didn't want to be a lawyer um, and that I wasn't particularly ex excited or inspired by the type of work that I was doing. And I think the big piece was um, I found that the work I was doing was a, a lot of execution um, and sort of putting into action um, strategy that had already been predefined before it came to my desk. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case with all lawyers and, and with all types of law, but it was for me. Uh, and what I was particularly passionate about was um, seeking out, finding, validating, developing the new. Um, and I guess by the new, what I mean is new products, new customer opportunities, and fundamentally new business models. Um, so my sort of eye was turned whilst I was a lawyer, and it was turned in the direction of startups, simply because startups at their very essence are tasked with figuring out uh, how we can capture new value, um, how we can target new customer segments, how can we create value for them, and then how can we capture value within a business model um, based on the value we're creating for customers. And so I started really just to dabble and experiment in the startup world, and that led me over time to then work with startups, to build my own companies. Um, so I, I, I worked with and built um, fintech company, real estate, uh, re property tech company, also in F&B, um, and also in travel and sports um, in, in, in London and elsewhere in the world in North America. Uh, and eventually my journey took me about five years ago now to Singapore. Um, and in Singapore, I was running Startup Bootcamp, which is uh, Rainmaking's early stage startup accelerator. Uh, and we have many of those all around the world. Um, and typically, we, we tend to run startup bootcamp programs in ecosystems that are should we say on the corporate innovation front, emerging um, or, or, or growing in maturity. And then as a um, ecosystem reaches greater maturity, we move away from the accelerator models, which are quite good for sparking an, uh, an innovating ecosystem, 
but are not so useful from a corporate perspective in terms of building new business models that they can scale and deliver significant value to the business. Uh, and really that's what I now do in Rainmaking. Uh, and Rainmaking is, is, is a company builder, a venture builder. So we create new companies, new value propositions and target new customer segments. And we do that in partnership with large corporates. Um, and that's really what we're about. And that's kind of my path, right? So my background at, at root was in that corporate sector. Uh, but I like to think that like many people in Rainmaking, I speak the corporate language and I also speak the entrepreneurship and the startup language. And, and, and that's really what we seek to do. So we're combining um, startup and, and entrepreneurship methodology, practice and process, um, and, and, and we're, we're leveraging corporate assets uh, to really see the best of both worlds. And I think that's kind of my career in a, in a nutshell. Great. And look, I think um, I, I'd like to, to go back to the, the early parts of that, actually, because, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of people that would like to, you know, sort of uh, sort of shed the uh, shed the bonds of sort of the corporate life or, or the uh, uh, sort of the big traditional sort of corporate life. I guess, you know, I mean, how you did you... like that. there might be people listening in corporates. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, I spent plenty of time in bigger corporates and had a wonderful time there. But, you know, I guess, um, you know, sort of the people that are sort of inspired to try and sort of go and sort of work for themselves or to, to, to get into this sort of stage. I, I guess what, what advice would you would you give to people that are at the sort of very nascent stages of that journey or thinking about it and not really sure how to how to go about it? Um, I think maybe two things. Uh, one is um, be very, very honest with yourself about what you have to offer. Um, I think a lot of the time people coming out of the corporate world um, believe that because they have five, six, 10, 15 years experience in that world, that they have an enormous amount to offer to startups in the startup ecosystem, um, and that they can parachute in potentially at quite a senior level. Um, within these startups. And my personal experience is that's actually just not the case. There, there are things that, that can be offered by people with that experience, and there's definitely expertise that, that, that can be super useful um, in building startups for sure. But I think you have to be very honest about the disconnect between what building a new company from scratch looks like and what working in a well-established corporate looks like. Um, and oftentimes there's an awful lot of unlearning and then relearning that needs to be done to truly add value as an entrepreneur. And I think that's something that, that I found um, quite early in, in, in my sort of, shall we say, transition into the startup world is I, it became very apparent to me that I had an awful lot to learn. Um, and actually that was uh, what was fabulously exciting for me is that in, in the first, shall we say, six months after stopping being a lawyer, I felt like I learned twice as much as I'd learned in the, in the two or four years before that as a lawyer. Um, so I think that's something that's very important to be very honest about what is your skill set and what you have to offer. And then secondly, um, to be very clear about what is an assumption about what you do want to do. Um, because you know, people make a decision to, to, to transition from, from a corporate world or, or one career into another. And they make it often on the basis of a, of a hunch or an instinctive feeling that, well, I really like art, so I want to go and work in the art world. Well, I really like sports, so I just like to do something in sports. Um, and then the, the reality of what those roles might be in a new industry, a new space, or, or a new um, uh, type of working like a startup rather than corporate can actually be quite different. So you have to, like a startup, um, be very honest that many of these things are assumptions. Um, and so you should set out, based on the career path you see yourself going, or the direction or the type of startup you want to go and work for, what are actually assumptions at the moment? And how do you rapidly validate whether or not uh, those assumptions are actually correct. Do you actually want to work in sports? 
or do you just want to enjoy sports? You don't want to work in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, do you actually want to move into marketing, which sounds cool and sexy and you've not done it before, uh, but on the day-to-day, what does that actually look like? And does that lend itself to, to what inspires and excites you? So I think thinking about it like a startup, setting out a raft of assumptions about this career role that you might be moving into, uh, and then experimenting or validating as quickly as possible whether or not um, you can validate those assumptions. And, and the, the simplest way to do that is to talk to people in those roles with very blunt and open and candid conversations about what they actually do. So what I used to do when I was um, moving away from the law was question people, what do you do in your job? And the first answer to that question is quite a, um, uh, should we say slick salesy response. Uh, so the one liner on the LinkedIn page or, or, or you know, what, what you would give in the opening of a sales meeting or what you will do when you go to interview with your next company. Um, and then you say, okay, but what does that fundamentally mean? Uh, give me the bullet points that break that down. And then for each of those bullet points, well, what does that look like? Please explain to me what you do uh, when you're executing that particular um, component of your role. And then very quickly, you get to the reality of the job. And the reality of every job is it's not all interesting stuff. Um, and, and, and that's, let's be honest about it, that's very true for almost everybody. There's parts of my job today that are not the most interesting, but they just have to be done. Um, but you want to understand what the sort of um, portfolio of tasks looks like. How many of them excite you? How many of them inspire you? Um, and, and that gives you a better idea as to this is something that might be interesting for you to go down. And to bring it very real to life, I've talked about sports. So actually, I um, had an idea very early in my career that, that I wanted to work in sports management. Um, so whilst I was still working as a lawyer, I um, volunteered with a um, sports tech startup, um, which was basically doing agency, sports agency, a, a sort of digital, digital sports agency for um, uh, for, for high potential young athletes in emerging economies. Um, and with, given my legal background, I had quite a lot to offer for this startup and I started working with them. And I quickly realized I didn't want to do this type of work because it was agency sports management. It's very similar to, to legal work and it's just not something I was super excited about. Um, but before that, I was, I, you know, I thought sports is the way to go. So I think it's just about being very honest about what are your assumptions and then running experiments like I did to be able to test um, if genuinely this is the path you want to go down. And that, I think over a period of hopefully months and, and probably more likely years, um, you develop a clearer picture um, of what the type of role that you want to do. I ask a lot of people who apply to Rainmaking and reach out to me um, to speak about different roles. I ask a lot of them, if you could write your JD, what does it look like? Um, and when the answer is, oh, well, I'm not particularly sure, um, then, I, then I'm worried. Uh, because there's, there's not a sort of clear purpose um, that sits behind you know, what they want to do. And I think that the, the, the most effective people that I have worked with and that I have hired uh, and the most value-adding people are the ones that have reached that point in their career where they very clearly understand what they want to deliver and how they want to do it, and they're quite discerning about the roles they then choose. Um, I think it's beneficial for everybody to get to that point as early as possible in a career. Um, but I also think it's not easy to get there. I was going to say, is there any way, because a lot of, a lot of um, that sort of self-realization and self-awareness comes with, uh, comes with age, um, or at least in, in my experience, it, it, it hopefully will soon. Um, but um, I guess, is there, any, is there anything you think that people can do to shortcut that? Um, or, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of personality assessments, there's that, that, those sorts of things which perhaps may not align wonderfully with, with this type of thing. Is there anything you think people can do to shortcut those, that, that, that journey to sort of that? 
Yes, I mean, uh, two things, uh, and I sort of alluded to them before. One is speak as widely as possible to as many different people in different spaces as possible and understand what they do and what their perspectives on it. And don't and, and certainly go outside of your close network. Um, if you speak to people that you went to university with, that you work with, um, that in your friendship groups, you will get very interesting perspectives, I'm sure. But a lot of the time you get um, comparable perspectives to your own because you've walked the same path. So it's incredibly important to speak widely um, to a range of people from a range of different backgrounds with a range of different experiences and just get their take um, because that's just information consumption and, and information is effectively what, what guides our perspectives and guides our ability to validate things. And then the second one, which I think is, is even better than, than talking to people, is, is actually experiencing different things. And it's totally um, doable whilst you're in a role that you maybe want to transition out of to experiment with different other roles. And that can be as simple as, oh, well, I, you know, at the moment I work in operations, and I want to get into digital marketing. Okay, so create a landing page for a fictitious product and experiment with some digital marketing around that and see if you enjoy doing that um, and see if you don't. And just run that experiment for one evening, one weekend, one week, uh, and then do that times 10, times 20, times 100, and you will very quickly build a portfolio of experience that allows you, guides your direction and helps you filter out things you don't want to do. And I, sort of um, with looking at, you know the startup bootcamp space i guess you've seen people from you know sort of every every aspect of this journey come in is there is there a strong correlation between the successful ones and the unsuccessful ones based on that level of self-awareness perhaps i think for um for startup bootcamps a startup bootcamps a early stage startup accelerator um and typically uh, on a startup bootcamp program we run one cohort every year um and typically in that cohort that's about 10 or 12 different companies and what we do is we take early stage typically pre-seed companies um and help them to shape a value proposition um that is high potential and validated um amongst potential customers um and then build a proposition and a product that solves for that um, and position a business model that, that then can be scaled. Um, so it's really about you know, the methodology that applies to venture building. Um, and I think that the, in terms of your question about correlation, the people that are well um, uh, are predisposed to do well in a startup bootcamp program or other accelerator programs um, are people who are very ready to listen um, and ready to absorb and synthesize data that they hear. And I think that's also true of people who, uh, who are successful with career transition. And I guess actually people who are successful with career progression, um, they're willing and able to absorb a lot of information from a lot of different sources. They have a ravenous appetite to do so. And once they've absorbed it, they synthesize it intelligently um, and, and respond and, and, and sort of follow the puck in the right direction. Um, I think that's the key um, driver of, 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 of whether somebody will be successful, you know, building that startup in the early stage. I think we've, I've, I've heard that position sort of mirrored, uh, you know, by a, a lot of people from hiring managers to, to VCs all across it. <laughs> you know, if somebody's not willing to listen, then then it's very difficult to um, to provide them anything. Um, and I guess so. Moving on from startup bootcamp to to rainmaking, tell us a bit about how corporate venture building works and, and how you guys go about that sort of process and, and perhaps as well just to stack my questions um sort of what sort of companies you, you you are typically sort of working with in this space yeah okay so for me corporate um venture building is about combining um startup competence and methodology with established corporate assets 
Um, and, and really that's the crux of, of, of sort of our investment thesis about how we build companies. So we've built 30 plus companies in the wild as a, as a sort of standalone venture studio. Um, some of those have done very well and some of those have um, uh, failed and been shut down and some of those we, we, we yet to see how it, how it turns out. Um, and, and what we've learned over time is that startup building is essentially a number of experiments. So you have a hypothesis about where there will be value in the future. Uh, and you're trying to build a proposition that solves for where that value will be in the future. And to get there, you will run multiple experiments, hundreds and, and thousands of experiments over a period of years. Uh, if you do that in the wild, every time you come to design and run an experiment, you set it up and you structure it and off you go. If you're working with a corporate partner, what I believe is that you can expedite the time to data because you can expedite the um, time it, which it takes to run the experiment. And the reason for that is you can leverage those corporate assets. So a really good example that, that I like to give is that we work with a logistics company um, for a venture that was um, based around warehouse space. Um, and so what we needed to do at some point in time on that venture was run experiments inside warehouses um, to understand the usage of that warehouse space. Now, if you and I, Sam, we're building that venture in the wild. If we get to that point in time and we want to prototype that and run those experiments, we now need to go and find a partner that will allow us to do that. Um, and that will take a bit of time. And hopefully we can do it reasonably quickly, but the, the way that some of these you know, uh, corporates work and the, the time delays it takes, that might take us months um, to actually set that experiment up then to get the data that we need. Um, the instance where we did that, we actually just click our fingers perhaps not that quickly, but we say, look, next Monday, we need to run these experiments and we get them up and running. Same thing is true. We did one um, in the mobility space and we were working with a um, uh, automotive company. Um, and so we were able to put a few trucks on the road the following Monday um, to be able to run those experiments, develop the data, and then understand, you know, are we moving in the right direction? Do we need to move in a different direction? Basically, yes, no is our hypothesis correct. Um, if you do that once, you might save yourself weeks or months. But given that you're going to be running hundreds of experiments over years, um, when you compound that ability to leverage the asset, and it's not just leverage asset for this type of experiment, it might be access to customers, it might be access to capital, it might be access to expertise, and it might also be access to infrastructure. Um, but, but when you compound that, the path to data is significantly greater in the wild, which means the path to validation is significantly greater, and then the path to scale, and ultimately the value comes at scale. Um, and the value for a founder is often an exit, um, uh, and so, so your path to that value is significantly diminished if you can do it by leveraging corporate assets. So really that's what I think um, corporate venture building is all about. Okay. And in terms of the type of companies we want to work with and we work with in this space, it's companies that are, you know, it's basically the, the sort of Fortune 500 companies. It's very well-established companies um, who, who, who have, you know, significant assets to be leveraged and enable us to de-risk the process of venture building. Because we can keep doing this in the wild, and we do. Um, but the reason we do corporate venture building is to de-risk that corporate venture building process uh, and basically increase time to value and therefore increase value of our portfolio. Okay. And to, 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 to ask perhaps a, a sort of a, a sort of basic question, by corporate assets, you're talking about the, the, the IP, the staff, the data, the, the, the sort of physical assets, the, the company's 
exposure and experience within their field, which then allows you to look at building perhaps a disruptive um, solution within that field, but you have immediate access to a large amount of information and data and, and people and sort of infrastructure that you can then leverage to, to fast track that process. Is that, is that, is that right? From the yeah, it can be all of those things, uh, but it can also be other things. It can be in a space that's outside of their field. Mm -hmm. However, they have a, um, a significant customer base. So at the very start of a, of a venture validation process, what you want to understand is what is the pain that you're going to be solving? Like, can, can you achieve problem validation? Does it make sense to attempt to build a solution for something? Uh, and what is the quantifiable value of that problem? Um, and so if you're working with a, a corporate partner that's got an awful lot of customers, you can very quickly run significant customer development for potential target profiles. And that allows you to understand different pains for different customer archetypes. Uh, and that allows you then to position um, the solutions that you might build to solve for that. So it's not just necessarily physical things. So it's not, for example, the trucks I talked about or the warehouses that I mentioned, but it could be the customer base. Um, it could be the distribution channels. Uh, you know, a company that's established with, with significant distribution in a particular space, particularly, potential, particularly where it's a, an area that dif distribution is difficult, it's very beneficial then to be partnered with that company to be able to leverage those distribution channels to quickly run tests about how you will acquire customers. Okay, okay. And, so, you know, obviously it's sort of fairly well documented some of the challenges of, of moving quickly in a large company. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think um, innovation in the corporate world has, has come on an awful long way in the last sort of five plus years from sort of innovation labs and sort of wacky ideas and perhaps that, that sort of environment to more sort of uh, mission orientated sort of processes. Um, how do how do you get around, um, I guess, corporate inertia and sort of, you know, that sort of red tape and and you know what, what, what do you do you set up a outside of that environment do you set up in like sort of a within that environment but with a, a sort of a safe space to play sort of how does how does how does that work because obviously that's you know largely speaking that's the biggest barrier for innovation for companies is that is that sort of um that structure yeah um and i think the uh the answer to how do you get around it i think there's a, a question before that which is there's a decision to be made as to if you even want to attempt to get around it um, because depending on what the mentality is um, and, 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 and the, the constraints on that front, you may say, you know what, this is not worth working in that space, simply because we don't believe that we can deliver value in that space. Because the reality is that building new ventures in, is inherently uncertain um, and is um, inherently different to operating an established corporate. Um, so if it's essentially you want to say, let's go and do innovation and let's build new business models or experiment with new business models, and let's do that within the structure of our status quo um, sort of legacy corporate um, infrastructure, um, the reality is that's just going to be nigh on impossible to do. Um, so if there's no openness to move outside of the status quo, um, then, then it, just, it, it just won't be sort of an area where we're interested to play. Um, and that's even if we were to you know, be working with a partner who just wants to pay us a load of money to do that. The logic is that even though you could make significant margins on doing that, you won't deliver the impact that you want to deliver. Uh, and we're driven by delivering impact through the ventures that we can create. Um, and actually our model is, but our business model is based around co-investment um, and, and, and sharing uh, equity in the companies that we build with our corporate partners. So there's an investment decision there. So if, for example, you know, a, 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 a potential partner or collaborator 
with us um, is not able to step outside of the sort of status, so status quo structures and, and, and governance that they apply to their existing business uh, and that maybe is not appropriate to apply to new venture building, um, then there's an investment decision on our part because we expect to make our wealth in equity upside in those companies. So we don't want to invest our time and effort and everything else um, in building these companies, which we think are going to be hamstrung from the start. Just doesn't make sense. So that's the first question. Then the second part is, well, then how do you do it? And I guess the very simple answer to how do you do that is our preferred approach and what we believe is the highest value approach is effectively to create venture studios um, that are powered in part by, powered by rainmaking and in partnership with the corporate. Uh, and what we're doing then is we're embedding a uh, infrastructure, governance, process, methodology, talent, um, ideation, and everything else, funding structure that, that supports new venture building. Um, rather than supporting continued business operations. Uh, and, and I guess a very easy way to sort of think about that or contextualize it for people listening is you take the best of um, the VC industry and how that's been established uh, over many years and you apply that to a corporate venture build structure, which means you build portfolios rather than individual projects, which means that you invest very small amounts at the start and you double down on the ventures which are showing a significant um, diminishment in uncertainty. So basically you say any idea at the start is 100% uncertain. So we are gonna run experiments until it is 0% uncertain. And then effectively we have a, an established thriving business. Um, so over time, if you're running 10 ventures or 20 or 30, uh, then the, the level of uncertainty on each of those ventures comes down. For the ones where it doesn't come down or doesn't come down significantly, you won't reinvest. For the ones where it is coming down, you continue to reinvest because you're, you're attempting to get to a point of sort of no uncertainty where you have a thriving business. And what that means is a metered funding structure that looks very similar to VC investments um, in terms of pre-seed and seed and series A and B and beyond. Um, what it also means is that you need professional entrepreneurial talent uh, to be working on these, on these uh, ventures. And that just basically means people with the muscle memory of having worked to build venture companies and to raise money for venture companies and to shut down venture companies. So you just have the experience of knowing how to do it. Um, to get that type of talent, you're going to need to incentivize them with equity, not just with salaries. So that means you're going to have to restructure how you might think about a venture build project within a corporate to think about it as a equity, an entity that founders can hold equity in outside of the corporate. And of course, the corporate's going to hold equity as well. Um, the next step is to have these great founders building great ventures where their incentive, where their incentivization is the equity upside. They can't be building that venture at the whim of the corporate agenda. Uh, so it can't be the case that at any turn, so-and-so um, senior stakeholder within the corporate says, well, we'll just shut that down. Uh, or we want to push that to move in this direction so it doesn't potentially you know, cannibalize our business or compete with our business. Uh, it needs to be um, uh, direction determined, as with any other startup, by the board and the management of that startup. Um, and so a corporate needs to accept that it won't have complete control over the direction of these companies. Uh, and really what that means is instituting a corporate venture studio structure and then enabling that um, with a fund that is, and I'm not talking about a, a fund fund, but with a pot of money that allows multiple ventures to initiate seed rounds and then to follow on with series A rounds and then to follow on with series B if necessary. And ultimately, if the corporate wants to see the real benefit for itself, there needs to be um, an ability or at least an expectation in the future that they will consume the venture. Um, and, and that will require, you know, a consumption fee. 
um, basically a buyback from the founders. So it's just really about setting it up for success in a venture studio model that, that takes the best of the VC industry. And how are you finding the maturity of businesses in the market? Um, by maturity, I guess, I mean, sort of um, ability to engage with that sort of um, that structure, because, you know, particularly if you've got sort of large traditional businesses, you have people that have worked a particular way, they've been very successful because they've worked that particular way. Um, and so I guess, how do you get over those those initial stages and, and what sort of questions do you ask them and how do you, you know, how do you work out if they're if they're ready? And and I guess there's, there's probably two parts to that. It's like, are they ready now? And it's like, if not, with a bit of coaching and with the right process around the, do you think they could they could really buy into a process like this how do you how do you go about sort of deciding uh, that that in your sort of partners so i think you're right that um the i mean the way we think about corporate venture building and the structures that we would apply um assumes uh, a, a lot of context that we've just built up over years of doing this so we didn't approach it this way 10 years ago um and, and we learned by doing and evolved over time um, and I think that there is a contextual deficit um, with some of the, the, the corporates that I, that I speak to. And that's totally understandable um, because you don't know what you don't know. And until you've you know, genuinely experienced some of this stuff, it's, it's, it's difficult to really have that sort of fundamental grounding in it. Um, from my perspective, what we're talking about here is creating the future of a company. Um, so the agenda um, of, uh, amongst people that, that we work with needs to be, well, we're seeking to create the future business models that power growth of this company. Um, so how do we take whatever the business is today that may be good, bad, or otherwise, and it may be a growing business today, but how do we add multiple new business models, which means that we're generating significantly greater revenues over time into the future and adding significant enterprise value over time into the future. That needs to be the, the, the objective, the overriding objective. And then you look at what are the mechanisms that have been applied traditionally by corporates to do that. Uh, and you have things like M&A and you have things like R&D and you have things like CBC. Um, so I guess a, a sort of litmus test for me is, is the potential partner thinking about corporate venture building in the same bucket or on the same platform as those things. So are they thinking about it as a comparable uh, growth engine, future growth engine, as M&A, as R&D, as CBC? Um, and, and our belief is it's a more capital efficient growth engine. Um, so we firmly believe that it's, it's you know, preferable um, to take this approach. And I think that increasingly we're gonna see more and more corporates do that. But I guess the litmus test is if people are thinking about new venture building and innovation as a sort of piecemeal 20,000, 40,000 here for some startup challenges and, and, and startup pitch contests and hackathons and things like that. They're just not thinking about creating the future of the company, which is totally fine, but they're probably not a, a collaborator for us, um, given, given the type of work that we want to do. Um, and then your, the, the sort of second part of your question was, well, what do you then do? Can you empathize with that position and meet them where they are and over time, move on a journey to get to the point where you know, they do approach it in this way that I've described. Um, and I think arguably you can, but the reality is the, the, you, you just don't need to do that. You just don't need to go and, and play in that space to take people on a journey. And then the difficult part is, I say you can do it. The reality is that piecemeal innovation work is not delivered or owned or, um, uh, or, 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 or sort of uh, accountability doesn't sit with the same people 
that are going to be making decisions around doing genuine studio venture building. Um, so there's a massive disconnect there between those two worlds. That, that type of work um, tends to sit with innovation labs and tends to sit with startup ecosystem teams. And the budgets are just you know, not comparable to M&A budgets and, and, and CVC budgets and R&D budgets. And when you're talking about budgets that are not comparable, of course, you won't achieve the same outputs. So if you're talking about building the future of the company, you have to put it on the same platform as, as those things that I've talked about. And I, I guess sort of two two questions from that. Um, do, do you find typically that sort of um, by opting in to a decision about something like this, typically the people that you're speaking to have already gone through that sort of um, sort of uh, intellectual journey and they already see the value. So they're, they're seeking out the best option anyway, which makes them easier to work with. Um, and then I, I um, then the second question is, is it you know is part of it that because this is still quite a quite a young process and a young industry for for large corporates do you, do you think that there's a few people that just need to wait and see wait and see some, wait and find out some more successes and see other people do it successfully before they're willing to to sort of be be the guy that drops five million to a pot to, <laughs> to, well, to think, run something like that. I think that the, the latter part, that will always be the case, right? The majority in any, in any space, the majority of people are not the early adopters. Um, and, uh, and I think that's exactly the same here. And, and so what we see right now, um, to your first point, is that the, um, uh, there is, a, uh, there is a, a part of the sort of corporate population that, that are the early adopters. And where we are right now, in terms of how I describe this, is we're at that early adoption phase. And there are um, some corporates that approach it and think about it like that uh, and think about venture building as a comparable future growth engine as M&A and R&D and CBC and things like this, um, and then approach it in the way that I've described. Um, the majority do not yet, but you know, month on month, year on year, more and more come to the table. And as usually happens with these things, the early adopters uh, reach tipping point and, and at that point, uh, they, the majority are there. And so, I mean, it's my firm belief that this is what the, um, the, the future of corporate innovation will look like. And actually it's my belief that, that this, is, this will be the driver of innovation generally. Um, so I have a, a hypothesis that the, um, the window for um, startup, the ability of startups to succeed is, is actually closing. I don't think it's closing super quickly, um, but I think the last, should we say, 30 years, innovation has been led by startups. Um, and, and what startups have is an institutional competence of new business building. Um, and so year on year, we've seen one or two or five or 10 small numbers of very well-established startups break into that group of um, sort of global behemoth companies. Um, and, and, and year on year, there's a few more that, that reach the pool. So the, the relative weighting uh, of the largest companies in the world shifts from very heavily uh, legacy incumbent companies to slightly less heavily legacy incumbent companies. And year on year, that, that, that proportion shifts and, and diminishes in, in favor of the sort of uh, incoming startups or, or post-startup corporates. Um, I, I believe that we've seen that, and the reason it's been possible is that institutional competence of startups and the institutional competence of venture building that they hold. Um, I don't think corporates have traditionally had that, but corporates have all the assets. So I believe that corporates will increasingly develop that institutional competence of new business building. And as they do, it makes it more difficult for corporates, uh, sorry, for startups to break through. And that's a really interesting point. And I, I, there's, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of the large financial services players in Singapore 
um, quite quite effectively build um, what, what we would sort of call in a innovation kind of capability. Um, you know, as, like the term innovation is a mindset, not a department. So I wouldn't call it an innovation department. But you know, we've seen sort of success in being able to take that that innovation mindset and roll it out and um, building sort of capabilities for new ventures. Do you, do you see a scenario in which where the the, the startups where, where, where corporates can sort of straddle the gap between that internal and external, um, you know, startup accelerator scene. So they might have some internal capability, but also they are like, okay, you know what, we want to get into all of this. So we're going to build a, a capability for that. Um, and so do you see this, this, this startup sort of uh, incubation scene becoming more corporate driven, which I think you've just kind of said, but I, I just to sort of to chill down on the point. Um, I think it's imperative that corporates do develop that as an institutional competence. Um, so I'll, I'll try to um, illustrate it and, and, and oversimplify in doing so. So if you think about um, an established corporate that's never touched innovation, never touched venture building, and let's say it's got 10 business lines. So you can say that all of those business lines are um, legacy business lines, typical corporate encumbrant business lines without the institutional competence and capability of venture building embedded within it. And let's say they're all um, red business lines, the red tin cans on a conveyor belt. Um, and they all have a lifespan. So at some point in time, uh, margin erosion will hit each of those um, and they will plateau or, or, or they will start to diminish in, in terms of the value they bring to the business. So at some point in time, let's say they, the value falls away and they fall off the end of the conveyor belt. So you've got these marching red cans and at some point they fall off the end of the conveyor belt. Um, let's say a startup in the wild uh, with an institutional competence in new business building, let's say that's a blue can. So if a corporate um, says, do you know what, we're coming to this and we're going to do it in the perfect way, as I believe and as I've described, and we're going to have this, this um, corporate venture studio where we create these new businesses with that institutional competence, uh, and they sit outside, you've now got blue cans also on the conveyor belt, and they'll sit behind the red cans on the conveyor belt because they've got a greater lifespan because they're newer and they're tapping up emerging value rather than existing value. Um, uh, if you take one of those blue cans and put it within the structure of that 10 business line corporate. So you've now got 10 red and one blue. What do you think is probably likely to happen now that it's uh, beholden to the same governance structures and, and reporting structures within the corporate and the same culture and the same teams and all these different things? It's likely to be diluted a little bit in terms of its competence, in terms of its competence of venture building. So instead of being a blue can, it becomes probably a purple can or it will all the way to a red can. And I think that you know that's been seen with M&A and acquisitions of startups that large corporates have made, and there's been significant integration issues. And actually, once it has been acquired and, and integrated, um, it, it becomes sort of less less of what it was before, or it loses some of its entrepreneurial flair, should we say, and its its competence of venture building it becomes more of a purple cap, uh, or at worst a red cap. Um, so I think it's actually very difficult to establish that competence within corporates as an institutional competence, even though it's entirely necessary that they do it. And I actually believe the only way to do it is to create 10 new business lines outside of the corporate. And then en masse, at some point in time when it makes sense to do so, either close down or divest or shutter the remaining red cans and replace en masse with the blue cans, which are now successful businesses. And effectively what you have now is 
uh, multiple business lines that form that group, um, which, which all have an institutional competence of, of uh, business building and venture building. Uh, and so you've basically changed the corporate en masse. Um, there is one outstanding problem, which is the management team of that corporate would potentially still be a red group. So now you have 10 blue lines reporting to red management. And again, you then have a problem with dilution. Um, so there's, there's two solutions there. One is you either also embed and add blue people, should we say, within to that management group to avoid that happening and uh, be conscious that, that that may be the case, that that will happen. Um, or perhaps the more radical, but perhaps the more likely to succeed or the more sort of um, seamless way to do it is for that red management um, to effectively fire themselves um, upon acquisition of all the blues. But I'm not sure that this is something which is, which is conceptually interesting, but I think realistically, um, this, is, this is far from practical uh, in, in the real world. And, uh, and that's a, it's a, a, I think a challenging concept for a lot of businesses because you're, you're effectively hiring outside of your sort of scope of experience and, and expertise. And I, I think that we've seen, I, I can't think of any specific ones, not that I've mentioned them, but I, that, you know, I think we've seen a lot of times where people have hired, um, there's a company called What If Innovation, they had this um, list of um, in, innovation stereotypes, and one of them was Captain Beanbag, and Captain Beanbag's, you know, his his MO was to basically raise the crazy quotient every time he came into the room. And I, and I think sort of, um, it's I think it's perhaps difficult for this red style management to to understand what an effective different style of management would be in an area that they don't have any exposure in. So how, how do how do they get around that? How do they how do they sort of you know mitigate the risk on 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 a terrible hire or <laughs> a terrible decision on that? Um, they work with you, don't they, Sam? That mitigates. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't trying to set that up, but I'm, I'm really pleased you said that. Um, so <laughs> I, I think I think you, you actually um, I think you, you surfaced quite an interesting point. So um, so I mean the majority of corporates have made some attempt um, and continue to to make some attempt to um, uh, to create an innovation function um, or to create a new ventures function. Um, and uh, and I think that, that that many have been good and some have been bad and some sit somewhere in the middle. Um, I think one thing that 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 potentially lets down um, the establishment of these functions is the person that you're hiring and the team that you're hiring to design and structure and drive that function um, is probably a person that you don't have experience hiring. Um, because what you're asking them to do is something that the corporate doesn't traditionally do, um, and probably somebody that you've never hired before. Um, which is not to say that you can't hire them, but you're looking for different things. Um, you're looking for different characteristics. And my belief is that, that what is very beneficial for corporates in, in, in that scenario is actually to um, outsource some of the hiring, or, 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 or I mean, not to not to give you a fantastic sort of um, sales nod here, but to outsource some of the hiring to people that do do that professionally or that have done that professionally. Um, but, but even better perhaps is to involve people in your sort of hiring a process to help you. So external independent people to, to provide a sort of different lens. Uh, and sometimes if we're hiring people, if I'm hiring people for particular roles where I don't have experience, or I don't consider that we have significant experience in that space, then I won't presume to, to, to know how to hire those people. Um, but we'll go to experts to be a part of that hiring process. 
Um, and in this case, I guess what I'm saying is if you want to hire a great um, uh, venture studio owner or somebody to drive corporate innovation within your corporate, you need to look to the market about who is genuinely very successful at having done that. And that probably means a successful entrepreneur. It probably means a successful um, uh, um, uh, uh, venture capital investor or portfolio owner. Um, and, to, and, and to have them support your hiring process because they understand um, a little bit better about what you would be looking for in those types of roles. Um, so I think that's, that's a way to, to sort of get around it. It's always interesting seeing how these, these relationships sort of um, progress because it's often oil and water. Um, and so the, the, you know, I think it's, it's, and the success stories are also really, really interesting because there, I think there are, it's a, it's a unique skill really to, to be able to bridge that gap between that sort of early stage kind of entrepreneurial mindset with aligning that to a corporate to a corporate sort of um, vision. Um, fascinating. Um, the uh, so you, I'm interested, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm, I'm interested in um, sort of hearing your opinion. Having worked with both early stage startups and corporates, what can they learn from each other? Um, you know, what did what did, does one do well that the other should should sort of consider trying to to um you know to implement or to to learn from well i've alluded to it a little bit earlier in the conversation but i think from a corporate perspective um the most important learnings to take are from the startup ecosystem um and, and, and the evolution of that um venture investing ecosystem um uh, in recent history and then i guess what that actually means is to take the learnings from the vc industry um, and, you know, successful VCs um, invest uh, significant amounts of money in small tranches, relatively small tranches based on, on the portfolio, that they, the fund that they, they have and that they're managing. Um, and, and, and what they tend to do is, is make a, a range of small bets and then double down on the ones that are showing traction uh, and diminishing uncertainty in terms of their value proposition uh, and likelihood of success. And then they put more money into those. Um, what they also do is they don't um, control the direction of those startups that they invest in. Uh, but that control sits in the hand of the management of the startup and, and the board of the startup. Um, but it's not guided by the investor who says, you must take this path or you must do it this way or I believe this, so that's the way it must be. They allow those startups to be guided by two things, um, the data that the startups are generating with their activity in the market and the talent who, who, are, who, who are leading that startup that they trust in those founders. Um, and I think in the same way, um, corporates can look at their venture build portfolio, um, their innovation portfolio, and trust in a range of different projects and trust in the people who are building, which means they do genuinely have to hire people that they have trust in. Um, the other, I guess, learning from that um, BC ecosystem is that those founders in those startups are incentivized by the equity upside that they will generate um, if they do succeed with this venture. And so in the same way, in corporate venture building, it's important that people working on the projects are incentivized by that equity upside. I had a really interesting conversation earlier today with somebody um, about a um, one of the innovation labs in, in Singapore, um, and, 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 and there are sort of a few of them that have gone this gone this way in, in the last few years, um, which is it, it sort of shuttered after a, a reasonably long run. Um, and, and 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 I think. One of the things that we hit upon in terms of the, the reason for um, a lack of, should we say, impact or value coming out of the lab is that the people who are working in the lab are great people um, and, and very strong in terms of uh, the value that they can add, but are not necessarily incentivized in the right way. 
Um, because often people who work within corporates have a, a sort of stable and nice salary, a benefits package, um, and, 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 and you know, it becomes quite an easy life. And actually it's a more exciting life in the innovation lab because you get to take your tie off and you get to, um, not that we wear ties here at Singapore, but you get to sort of get out of the suit and you get to work with the um, interesting, sexy startups and startup pitch events and things like that and startup ecosystem type roles and things like that. Um, but you're not incentivized by the value delivered by the portfolio. So I think building that incentivization and structuring that into the owners of the venture studio or the, the, the venture function is incredibly important. And that can be taken from the, um, from the, the BC, BC ecosystem because that's how startup entrepreneurs are, uh, are incentivized. And how, is there anything that, um, the, the, uh, and I, I don't think we can cover this particularly, but is there anything that the startups can really learn from how corporates approach things? And yeah. I mean, an awful lot, an awful lot. Um, and, and, you know, corporates are fantastic at um, building and maintaining established customer bases. Even when, you know, even when established corporates don't have, you know, the best products, um, a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, they're able to, you know, maintain significant customer, customer bases uh, and re-engagement with customers, which is, is um, incredibly important for early stage startups. So corporates have, at some point in their journey, hit upon the thing that startups are seeking to hit upon, which is value delivered to a customer. Um, and then what they're doing is, is managing the delivery and hopefully iterating, improving the delivery of, of that value. So startups can learn a lot because they can look at the business model patterns and the evolution of corporates, which are all effectively um, very, very late stage startups. They were a startup at one point in time, and they've managed to hit on that genuine creation and capture of value. So startups can look to those corporates and understand the business model patterns that have succeeded. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they will succeed in the future, but they can look at business model transitions that corporates have done and how they've positioned, repositioned and pivoted, and what that means in terms of how they move to capture new value. Um, the same thing is true the other way around. So corporates can look at the emerging startups which are the ones that are generating series A and series B and beyond investment? Typically what that means is a validated problem, a validated solution, validated business model. And that investment is, is sort of, you know, validation of those things, um, uh, particularly if it's sensible investment from, coming from smart money. Um, and so corporates can look to that and say, okay, uh, there's a validated business model and the growth story here. So what does that mean? about what this particular part of our industry will look like in two, three, four, five years time when one or two of these startups becomes very successful. Because if there's density of startups in the space, you can, you can pretty much bet that one or two of those will become very successful. They might consolidate, um, but, but, but some of them will come to the fore. So what does that mean in terms of then the industry looks like and how it reconfigures? So in both ways, startups and corporates can look to their interaction with customers in the market to understand the patterns and what's driving change or what has driven success in the past. And I think that can be super useful. I think there's a really good sort of case in point on that, looking at financial services. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's, you know, five years ago, fintech was going to end banking um, or end traditional banks. And I, I, whilst I still think there are, you know, they're, they're going through a very, uh, like everything, they're going through an industrial revolution sort of level of change. Um, but what, what has been quite interesting is that a lot of banks have been able to implement um, a lot of fintech principles into their product offering and they're, they're really um, they've, they've done very well at pivoting into that and then leveraging those 
more exciting, more accessible products from the fintech community and leveraging that onto their existing huge sort of population. So I think that's quite an, a nice sort of case in point of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the majority um, of startups are not seeking to kill corporates. Yeah. Uh, the majority of startups want to work with corporates. And the reason they want to work with corporates is one of the things we talked about right at the start, um, those uh, significant assets that corporates have and what that means for a startup in terms of its growth journey, in terms of its ability to iterate and evolve its product, in terms of its ability to generate data that allows it to improve or, or refine its direction. Uh, and of course, its ability to develop revenues. Um, you know, most businesses, uh, that are built have some form of distribution partnership in all sorts of different ways and many times a, a, a corporate can be a distribution partner for a startup because it has access to significant customer bases um, and we've worked on ventures in the past where what we're doing we start out exploring a particular opportunity space um, we we sort of fasten onto a, some value that's missing in the market that we think we can solve and then we realize the the quickest most effective most efficient and probably most high value path to deliver that 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 um, that value to the market is through what is effectively a co-venture with a growth stage startup, um, so a Series ABC company. Uh, and, and what we then do is we is we work with the corporate and the startup to structure a co-venture um, that allows them both to capitalize. And okay, and so moving moving on, um, so the final final couple of questions before we get to the everybody's favorite part of the show, not the end, the quick fire questions. Um, so um, I think one, one thing I'm interested to explore is um, not, not so much how um, COVID is affecting how businesses work now, but how having gone through perhaps the journey that they've gone through because of COVID, how that might affect their their proposition going forward and how they can they can leverage this experience to to innovate and just generally how that, that future looks. How do, how do you think that's affecting? Well, I think, um... If I think about it, I guess selfishly, how does how does how do how do corporates um, how will this impact the way corporates think about innovating? I think is, is how you, you put it together. Um, then, I mean, my personal belief is that there's a spectrum of corporate innovation activity, and on the left-hand side, the more early sta stage part of that spectrum is is more of the should we say superficial innovation, um, or, or what some people would say is innovation theatre. Um, things like hackathons, things like startup challenges and contests and pitch things and you know pitch contests and things like that. Um, and, and then as you move across the spectrum, you get to should we say more of the meat on the bones. And on the right hand side, it's it's the venture building um, that I believe is what's powering um, the future growth of, of corporates. Um, and I think that um, in recent times, corporates have done all of those different things um, in relative weightings, depending on who the corporate is. I think what COVID or the COVID crisis has done is, of course, created significant um, holes in, in, in companies' revenues and finances and caused a lot of companies to take a very tough look at what they do and where they can trim the fat. And that happens always in crisis. Um, and so it has sort of pulled back the curtain um, or lifted up the bonnet on all of this corporate innovation activity uh, and, and, and posed the question, what is the quantifiable value that has been delivered or is being delivered or is expected and forecast to be delivered? Uh, and worryingly, in many cases, the answer there is either we don't know or very insignificant. Um, and, and, and so the reality is, you, you know, you, you don't flog a horse, you don't flog the dead horse, you don't keep doing something when, uh, when you're not seeing the value from it. And that's uh, particularly true in corporates that are driven by ROIs and is particularly true um, at a time of crisis like this. So what I actually think 
um, this has done and is doing, and I'm seeing this in the market, is expediting the move to the right-hand side of the spectrum because it, it, it just does not make sense to continue on low-value innovation activity on the left-hand side of the spectrum. Um, and many of the things we've talked about today, uh, if in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I am proven correct on, on, on many of those things, um, then, then what that means is you need to be playing on the right-hand side. You need to be building a portfolio. You need to be approaching it like a VC. Um, and, 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 and all of that stuff on the left-hand side might be interesting today, um, might be entertaining and interesting for people within your teams and, and staff today, um, might create a bit of a sort of uh, pat on the back for ticking the innovation checkbox, but it's not delivering that value. Um, so I think there's a, a, a move towards the right-hand side of the spectrum, which is interesting for me because I just want to see this ecosystem move and continue to grow. Um, and, and, and when we get to the point where we have more and more corporates doing more of that genuine value creation work, venture studio type work. Uh, and that's super interesting because what does that mean? It means we bring more value and more valuable companies to the world. What does that mean? It means we create more jobs doing interesting things. We progress society faster than, than, than we are doing currently. And incrementally, hopefully we continue to do that more in a more rapid fashion over and over again. So that's what drives me because I'm, I'm, I care about the collective legacy that we can leave um, for, for our children and beyond. So I think that's super cool. Um, I guess more uh, macro, if I step back from what I do in terms of what is COVID doing and what opportunities it, it might create, then something that I'm super interested in and excited by is the potential sort of decentralization of society. Um, so we've seen that the impact on retail um, of COVID has been significant, uh, and particularly sort of you know, physical retail. Um, the impact on CBDs has been significant the world over. Uh, and the impact on, on real estate and property and CBDs and the use of that, that property. Um, and I think that Singapore is an interesting case because we're such a small place, um, but in many other big, city, big countries where people have tended to gravitate and flock to these big cities, uh, in the future, I think that will increasingly be less the case. And that's already, we've already seen that. Um, so what does that mean in terms of environmental impact is one thing, and that's super exciting and interesting. But what does it mean in terms of how society is then distributed with that decentralization of where people are and the decentralization of skills and how that then changes the makeup of different demographics? Because often you will have the educated set that flock to the big cities to work in the, uh, should we say, more skills-based jobs and, 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 and that require, should we say, more intellectual capital and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and, and when that changes and actually people maybe flock to more desirable places to live, what does that mean for different economies and different landscapes? And then what are the solutions that we need to provide for whether it's um, uh, whether it's sort of local government or local infrastructure, or whether it's you know um, operating systems for people to, to to work from home, and by that I mean physical operating systems as well as digital operating systems in terms of you know um, sort of uh, you know work, work pockets of, of work from home um, pods and things like that within people's houses. How does it change the way we design houses? Uh, for the future. So that's what I think is super exciting because there's so many opportunities coming out of this. So in terms of like, if you were to do a, um, a, you know, a venture analysis, a white space analysis of which companies should be built to solve for these problems, and this is just one particular space I've talked about, it's enormous. So the opportunity now is to build. And it's a really interesting confluence because we've got the opportunity to build and so much value now on the table to be captured. Um, we don't know specifically what it will be. We'll have to run a bunch of experiments, collectively in society. I'm sure we will. At the same time, we've got an enormous amount of people 
who very unfortunately are going to lose their jobs, have lost their jobs already, and are going to lose their jobs in the coming years. Um, so we've got talent flocking to the market with an enormous opportunity to go and solve for emerging value. And I think there's therefore a significant need for structured and focused um, uh, uh, education and process around building those new ventures for these people. And I think that's a super interesting space because the number of companies we're gonna see coming out of this crisis is, is massive. Uh, and the number of new jobs are gonna be created out of this crisis is also massive. Uh, and I think many of the people who are gonna do that, the people who have lost their job uh, today, tomorrow, in the coming years, and that will be the fillet to go and do something new. I think it's super exciting. Thank you. And I think that's a, a, a good place to finish. That was a good, a good closing thought. Um, so I, I guess we're on to the, the final section um, of the podcast now. Um, so are you ready for the quickfire questions? Are you prepared? Is it a sort of prize-based round? If I get the quickfire questions right, do I get a prize? Well, these, these are open questions, so I don't think there's a, a necessarily a right or wrong answer. Uh, if, you, um, if, you, if you fail to answer them all, you definitely won't get a prize. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me do my best then. Okay, excellent. Um, so question number one, um, what is the best advice you've been given? From my dad um, when I was very young. Um, and, and he said to me, never wish your life away. And it stuck with me from, from when he said it. I must have been, I don't know, maybe five at the time. Um, and I think it was my birthday was upcoming um, a few days' time. And I was, he was putting me to bed. Um, and uh, I said, oh, I'm so excited about my birthday. I can't wait to see what I get for my presents and blah, blah, blah. And he said, yep, yeah, that's going to be great. A couple more days. And I said, I wish I went to sleep tonight. And I woke up tomorrow. And I've skipped those two days. And it's now my birthday. And he, without, without hesitation, he said, never wish your life away. Um, and I guess the, the speed of reaction really resonated or really stuck with me, really struck me at the time. And I thought about it at the time, even as a, a, a bit of a whippersnapper. And I always think back to that. I think it's so important. I think we're so lucky to be alive. I think we're so blessed with opportunity. Um, I think it's such an important thing to keep, uh, to, to, hold, to hold close to us, that, that never wish your life away and never um, shy away from the opportunity you have. Um, I guess there's an, another way of thinking about it. It's not my dad. Um, Jay-Z said in, in one of his songs, uh, rather die enormous than live dormant. And I think it's a similar principle. And I believe, I believe in that too. Um, next question. What is your favorite terrible management slogan? And uh, everybody knows now that mine is, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> um, I don't, I'm going to struggle with this one. I want to get the prize, but I'm gonna, I don't... I don't think I know too many management slogans. I try to stay clear of them. It's not a, it's not a, it's, it's not terrible. I think it's brilliant. Um, but, and I guess my last point and maybe I'm painting a, a one dimensional picture of myself, but I think that the one thing that, that, that Steve Jobs famously said, I think is brilliant. He said, I, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. And I think that's a brilliant way to think about your life. I think we should reassess our, our lives on a, on a daily basis like that. But I don't think that's a terrible management slogan. I think that's a brilliant um, uh, philosophy. So I have, maybe I missed the prize. Elegantly, elegantly avoided. Um, so, <laughs> uh, next question. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. 
well, I guess what we've been talking about today. Um, yeah. <laughs> corporates are the world's next great VC investor. I think it's that. And I don't mean that in the context of, of, of VC investing as we've seen in the past, but as I've been talking about today. Um, so instead of investing uh, in startups in the wild, they will be investing significant portfolios, uh, significant amounts of money in portfolios of, of venture bills. So putting that on the same um, podium as, as M&A and, and CVC and, um, and R&D. Uh, and I think that, there are, there, are, there are some people who agree with me on that and some corporates who certainly agree with me on that. But I like how we were talking about earlier. It's the early adopters. What's the first place you'll visit uh, once travel restrictions are lifted? Um, uh, it will be uh, Western Australia or possibly New Zealand, which are two of my favorite, absolute favorite places in the world. Both have very good wine um, and other things as well. But not very good wine, very good craft beer, very good coffee, yeah. fantastic landscapes. <laughs> Fantastic landscape came fourth in that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. What's uh, what's your most obscure hobby? Um, well, I don't know how obscure, uh, but but longboarding. Uh, so I longboarding. Um, it's a it's a long skateboard. Um, uh -huh. and, and when I was younger, I did a bit of skateboarding, not particularly. Um, but for years now, I've been I've been longboarding around Singapore. Um, it's actually, so I live I live. Um, on the water and, and I've been until the lockdown I, I worked in the CBD and I, I would longboard along the coast in the morning it's kind of my um, uh, it's integrating my workout into my commute um, and it's also quite meditative and, and, and a really great way to think about things and focus on challenges and things like that I just enjoy it I think it's great fun I, I, I love the idea of it, but I feel like the reality for, for, for a late adopter for something like that will probably be quite painful and I'll get through too many pairs of jeans or something <laughs> falling off the skateboard. So, well, I think my, um, my children are going to be getting into it soon. So I've, I've told my wife she's going to have to take it up and she says yes. So, so Sam, I don't, I don't think it's too late. Was it yes or yes, dear? <laughs> it was, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait to do some longboard. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and last question. Um, what part of the future are you most excited by? Oh, easy. So easy. Um, the future of education. I'm so excited about the future of education. And I think it's because right now we are leaving so much on the table um, for our people and for society as a whole based on the education system and structure that we have today. Um, I think we are stifling people's potential. Um, I think that we are delivering only a, a part of the value we could deliver for everybody. And what that then means is if everybody uh, is 1%, is able to deliver 1% of their, 1% less than their maximum potential to society, for them individually, that's very small. But when you compound that across the world, that's an enormous amount that we're leaving on the table as a society. Um, so I'm so excited about how the education system can evolve and how it is going to evolve in the coming years, because I just think the evolution in that space over the past, I don't know, 100 years has been incredibly slow and has just not kept pace with evolution in different sectors. And I think that the wheels are turning and I think COVID is just pushing that, which is, which is I mean, uh, COVID is, is terrible in so many respects and, 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 and is fascinating in other respects in terms of how it's driving change. And I think this is one space where um, we are going to see rapid transformation and that is going to lead to uh, a far more productive um, uh, society, which is beneficial for everybody. I'm super excited about that. Sam Holt, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Very enjoyable. And thank you for making time to speak. To thank you, me. sir. It's been super cool. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. 
Next week, we welcome Lana Duong, the VP of Open Space Ventures. Lana is on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and joins us to shed light on the venture capital world and the future of the Southeast Asia region. I look forward to seeing you then. Stay safe. Farewell.